0: C.T. Studd, one of the preachers of old, he said this a number of decades ago. He said, I wish I could take every Christian and dangle them over the pit of hell for 30 seconds. If people could see the horrors of it, it would change their lives forever. I want us to do the same thing this morning with the beauty of heaven. As we look at the beauty of heaven, I want us to do the same thing. Heaven is not filled with chunky little babies with wings who are sitting around playing harps on clouds. That's a much different picture than what we just heard of what heaven looks like. So, this morning, I want us to see, as we look at Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, what heaven really is. And I want us to see the glory of Christ for what it really is. If you would, these words come from Psalm chapter 119 and verse number 18. If you would repeat these words after me. Open my eyes that I might receive your wonderful word to me. Amen. May that be our prayer this morning. As we jump into uh, chapter four, here's what I want us to see. And we just read this, so I'm not going to hit every single thing like I mentioned. But John begins here with chapter four, and I would encourage you, if you've missed the first three chapters, um, to go back and grab those on the podcast or on YouTube, Facebook, that kind of thing. There's a lot that we're going to set up. And even next week, as we look at chapter six, um, it, 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 Revelation, again, takes a, takes a real sharp turn, and we're going to see several things. As we see here in chapter four, uh, beginning in verse number one, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which i heard speaking to me like a trumpet now notice the word he says it wasn't a trumpet he said it was the voice like a trumpet and that voice said to him come up here and i will show you what must take place after this and we've said this several times this is why it's necessary for us to imagine here's what here's what heaven looks like it's because he's saying here's a picture of it So as we read through, we're not saying, well, here are all the details that John is talking about. He's saying, it looks like this. I want to show you what must take place after this. In verse number two, at once I was in the Spirit. Now, does anybody know where we've seen this phrase, in the Spirit? Already? Anybody? Chapter one. It says, John says, I was there in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And somebody actually sent me an email. They're like, what does that mean? On the Lord's day that would be Sunday because up until that point, the Jews had celebrated, uh, that was their Sabbath. It was on Saturday. Once Christ was raised from the dead by the power of the spirit that happened on a Sunday morning from then on until today, uh, the church celebrates the resurrected Christ on Sunday. And so the beginning of revelation, it happened on a Sunday. That's when he's, he first sees this vision. When he uses this phrase, the same phrase um, in the spirit, it means that John could see a spiritual reality with his physical eyes. So he's seeing this and he's enraptured by this. He's not just having a dream. A dream happens when you're asleep, a vision happens when you're awake. So he sees this with his physical eyes. Next, he says, I'm gonna, and, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Uh, this word behold right here, for some of our translations, it says, and they're before him. Really, in the Greek, what this word behold means, it means, look, right there. Don't miss it. Not, hey, behold. There are, there are two commands that are given throughout the book of Revelation more than anything else. The first one is fear not. Because if the book of Revelation doesn't scare you a little bit, then you're not reading it right. The second command that we see all throughout the, all throughout the book, all through uh, 22 chapters, is this word behold. To look. When me and uh, my, especially Axel, my oldest, my 13-year-old. He loves cars. And so if we're driving through traffic, we're driving down the road, if we see something that we really like, if he see something he, he likes, if I see a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, the other day we were going you know, through a gas station and there was, a, there was an, a Hummer, an H1, and it was decked out with these sick tires uh, and it was painted this lime green color. So I'm not just going to say, Axel, there's a Lamborghini flying by at 170 miles an hour. No. I say, look, don't miss it. There it is. Behold, that's what he's saying. It's right there. If you, if you don't look now, you're going to miss it. He says, behold, it's not way out there, but it's close. It's not way far away, it's at hand. Notice he says there, a throne stood in heaven. This word throne, it appears 47 times throughout the book of Revelation. And the throne is actually referenced 77 other times. So the dominant theme, the dominant picture that we have throughout the book of Revelation is this throne. We're going to see it all throughout, the, all throughout the rest. Then if we see here at the end of verse number two, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. In the book of Revelation, we never see God standing. We never see him. We never see God the Father standing. He is always seated on the throne. His work, the work is done. Verse number three. And he sat there, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper. You know what jasper is? It's the friendly ghost, right? So, no, this is different. uh, These are jewels. He says he had the appearance of. Does that mean he's decorated a literal jasper? No, it looks like that. He's like, ah, no, it looks like he's full of emeralds and jasper and and carnelian and we don't even know what it's just i don't have any words for this he's like it looks like this that that's how john is writing this he says he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald it was shining brightly he doesn't have the words to describe the beauty, the majesty, the radiance. He's saying it's lovely, it's dazzling beyond description. Now, the imagery of the rainbow is important because it represents, it symbolizes God's faithfulness and mercy. If we go back to when God flooded the entire world with Noah's ark, afterwards God said, "Look, Noah, I'm going to put a rainbow in the sky as a reminder that I'm never going to flood or destroy the world again." It's a, it's an image of mercy and of faithfulness of God. So here we have this idea that God, the Holy One, is sitting on this throne, but he's not saying, no, I'm way up here and you're way down there. He's saying, no, even though this throne is scary, and we're about to see how scary it is, he's saying, this throne is one that welcomes you. The, un, the, the Holy One says to the unholy one, us, he says, come close, come near this rainbow, it looks like a rainbow, is a reminder of my faithfulness and my mercy. The Holy One invites the unholy one. It is safe to come near. Verse number four, around the throne there are 24 thrones. We see this number. We talked about uh, the numbers a couple of weeks ago, how important these numbers are, what they represent. We see here these 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, and we see the appearance clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. These 12 thrones represent, uh, most commentators would say, it represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles who Christ called to follow him. Big picture is this. They represent the redeemed people of God. That's what these 24 thrones represent, the people of God from the Old Testament, his chosen people, and the New Testament, those he called to himself and said, go make more disciples of me. Both of these pictures are the idea of priests, which means the image here around the throne, the holy welcoming the unholy, the picture of the 24 thrones, is God moving toward his people. He's saying, I want you to be with me. I want you to be near to me. That's the picture that we have in heaven. Verse number five. This is where it gets scary. From the throne came flashes of lightning, lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which thankfully we saw this in chapter one. These seven torches of fire are the seven spirits of God. And we said that the number seven is perfection. And here we have the Holy Spirit who is present present there at the throne room of God. But before that, he says there are flashes of lightning. Has anybody ever here been in the middle of a thunderstorm? And I mean, not like in your house or in your car, like in the middle of one. I remember several, a couple years ago, I was uh, in Texas, and we were turkey hunting. And uh, we were on one of the prairies there in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nowhere, on tens of thousands of acres. And we went out that morning uh, to hunt turkeys. We knew there was some rain coming in that day. By about 10 o'clock, we were sitting, uh, me and a buddy of mine, John, we were sitting under a mesquite tree. And if you don't know what a mesquite tree looks like, just imagine like a giant stick. And when I mean giant, I mean like about 10 feet tall, 14 feet tall, maybe. No leaves, it's real thin. And so we're sitting here in the middle of the storm. Our vehicle was a couple of miles away. The turkeys were, I guess, a couple of miles away that way. We're sitting here. We can't walk back. We can't shoot anything. And we were sitting there just, I mean, it was pouring on us for about an hour and a half, two hours, lightning all around us. Now, the tallest thing in this field was this mesquite tree which is not that much taller than me. And we're sitting there, and I remember rain was just going into my, just soaked. And in that moment, I was like, after sitting there for a while, it starts hailing. It's hailing, lightning. And I thought, there's, there's like a, an 80% chance I'm going to die here in this field. Like, legitimately. After, after a couple of hours, I started hallucinating and I was like, man, I, I would rather be dead. Like, what, what's happening right now? You're like, hey, just imagine you're on a beach. No, don't imagine you're on a beach because then you just, your imagination starts, and you're like, no, I'm about to die in the middle of this field. They're never going to find us. It was crazy. It was incredibly scary. But don't forget here is the picture of the rainbow. So in the midst of that power, in the midst of what would normally be scary to us, the Holy One welcomes the unholy into his presence. Verse number six, the beginning of the the verse there. And before the throne, there was... As it were, again, this idea of he's not speaking specific. He's not giving us the details so we can write these in our detail journal. He's saying, get a picture of this. There's a sea of glass, and it looks like crystal. Anytime we see throughout the book of Revelation, really, this comes from the Old Testament, this picture of the sea, it means the chaos of mankind. It's this unruly nature that we have. But what Jesus wants us to see here in this letter to the church, he says, at the foot of the throne, there's this sea of glass, Chaos is not going to win. In the presence of Jesus before the throne, chaos is stilled. Chaos is subdued. In the presence of Christ, there is peace. Then we pick up in uh, verse number uh, six in the second half of verse six. It says, and around the throne, on each side of the throne are these four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Again, as we imagine this, it's like, man, this is really weird. This is strange stuff. Notice here we have this number four. Uh, The number four here, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is important. This number four, especially as it relates here, he's talking about all of the animate creation. So everything that lives and moves and breathes on the world. Notice what he says in verse number seven. The first living creature, now is it a lion? No, don't forget that. It's what? It's like a lion. The second living creature is like an ox. The third living creature with eh, the face of a man. Which man? I don't know. He says It looks kind of like a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. So as we, I think the reason he uses these animals here, because first, the lion is the noblest of all the animals. Secondly, the second living creature is the ox, and it's the strongest of all the animals, especially if we look at the context of first century, as they would understand animals, it's the strongest of animals. Third, we see the face of the man who is the wisest of all of God's creation. And then fourthly, it's like an eagle in flight who is the swiftest. It represents the swiftest of all of God's creation. Big picture, we're not the only ones on the face of this planet who are worshiping God day in and day out. This morning, we have joined in with a worship service that has started hundreds of years before we walked in here this morning. Hundreds of years before David Henry said, let me read this call to worship over us. He's not saying worship begins now. He's saying we're going to join in with this now. And we're sitting here back here singing our songs. You know, before the throne of God above, I have, yeah, yeah, I I checked. Yeah. We're working in the song. Perfect. God, man, I wish this coffee was a little more something. When we look at Revelation Our focus should be here. Man, we're missing something if we think that these are simply songs as we gather as the people of God. If we think this is simply something that we just have to do on a Sunday morning, well, you gotta play songs before you preach because that's in the Bible somewhere. No, friends, we're joining in with a worship service with all of creation. The mountains are singing. The trees are clapping, the rocks are crying out, they're displaying the splendor and the majesty and the beauty and the brilliance of who God is. And we get to join in with that. We step into a worship service. Look at verse number eight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around it. Look, I've been on, you know, if you look on YouTube, what we think of these angels, these beautiful, oh man, this is so nice people have put these descriptions into real life depictions of what this actually means man it'll it'll scare. don't watch it before you eat your breakfast like it's scary it's rough they have these eyes all around a day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and who is and who is to come and we've already seen that phrase here talking about the almighty god we step into a worship service that has been going on for a really long time. Eugene Peterson, he says this, In worship, every sign of life and every impulse to holiness, every bit of beauty and every spark of vitality, Hebrew patriarchs, Christian apostles, wild animals, domesticated livestock, human beings, soaring birds are arranged around this throne, the center that pulses light, each one showing off of its best, picking up all the colors of the spectrum in order to show off the glories. We have this picture here. Everything is radiating the majesty and splendor of God. Look at, look at this, this next set of verses. In verse number nine, he says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord. And God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. God created how many things? He created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Friend, without God's will, nothing would have been created and nothing would sustain its life without the will of God. Which means this, this is beautiful. You are here Today, your life exists because God wills it. Adrian Rogers said this, if you woke up this morning and you are still here, then God has a plan for your life. His plan for your life is to bring him glory and worship. Worship is an act of attention to the living God who rules, the living God who speaks, the living God who reveals, who creates, who redeems, who orders, the living God who blesses. Our lives are to be a reflection of what's happening in heaven right now. Somebody say amen. Yeah. That's a good chapter. I actually like chapter five better. It starts off like this. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. That's how scrolls were normally written. And they were normally uh, yards and yards, dozens of, of feet long. And it was sealed with seven seals, which is an indication of a Roman will. So if you were to, if someone who, were, who was an authority, they were to have their will, that was going to be read right after they died, they would normally seal it with seven seals. And it wasn't seven seals right across the top. It was usually a seal. You open some more of the scroll. There's another seal. You open some more of the scroll. There's another seal. So that's probably what he's talking about here, this scroll. When we see the idea of this scroll here that I saw in the right hand of him, who was seated on the throne. Who was seated on the throne? God the Father. Yeah, God the Almighty. He was seated on the throne. There was a scroll. This scroll contains God's plan to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's what this scroll, throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, we're going to see as this scroll is open what that means. But the scroll here is the story of God bringing heaven to earth and his plan and his will and the details of that. And the scroll contains the meaning of history for the world, It contains the meaning of your life. It contains the meaning of my life. William Muncy, he said this, the scroll contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. And this is the secret of history. In the scroll is the meaning of why God created the world. And he says here, God the Father is holding it in his hand. Then notice verse number two. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to reveal God's plan and to execute God's plan of redeeming all of creation, of bringing heaven down to earth? And look at verse number three. And no one. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. No one. Friends, we can do a lot of really fancy things. We as humans, we can build bridges. You ever look at a, you know, you drive across a bridge and you're like, oh, that was fun, you know, cool. There's a whole lot better than going down through the river. But just imagine just the, the, the technical nature of that bridge and supporting all this weight. That's really impressive. We can build bridges. We can have in our pockets access to all the information that has ever existed on the face of the planet. It's called Wikipedia. You know, like it's awesome. I'm just kidding. You can't believe everything you read on the internet. That's what I read on the internet. We, we have these iPhones that we've created. We can do all kinds of things. We can put men in space and women and monkeys. We can put all of them in space and satellites. We can build spaceships. We can write poetry. We can produce films. We can paint pictures. And here John says, no one in heaven or on earth can open the scroll or even look into it. Notice his response in verse number four. And I began to weep. He didn't just weep. He wept Loudly, He's crying out. Why? Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. My question is this. It's easy for me to ask my nine-year-old who is emotionally volatile why he's crying about something or tell him, hey, that's not worth crying about. I would, I would wonder for us, what do we cry about? Either literally or what do we complain about? What do we cry about? Is it, do we spend time crying for the fact that we need forgiveness of our sins? Are we crying for those who are perishing around us and are going to spend eternity separated from God? Do we spend time crying for the corruption that we see in the visible church? That's what John here is crying about. No one can, there is no hope. If no one is found worthy to open the scroll, there would be no end to the suffering that we see in this world. If no one is found worthy to open the scroll, there is going to be no ultimate victory for God's people. If there is found no one worthy to open the scroll, there is no experience of promised blessing. There's no new heaven. There's no new earth. There's no end to sin. There's no end to death. If no one is found worthy to open the scroll, there is no hope. And that's why he weeps loudly. Because he looks around and says, we can't do this by ourselves. We are utterly hopeless. But look at verse number five. What happens in verse number five changes everything that we see here on earth. It changes all of human history. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. He says, behold. He doesn't say behold. What does he say? Behold, look, there he is. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that what? He can open the scroll and its seven seals. He is worthy. This is Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, who comes and intercedes as a perfect high priest. He identifies with God and he identifies with mankind. He's the center of all of creation, all of humanity, all of human history. He says, you don't have to weep. We have Jesus Notice, in verse number six, real quick, look at verse number five. We just saw this. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And maybe you noticed this as you're reading this this week, hopefully. Maybe you noticed that I heard a few, hmm, when LB was reading this a few minutes ago. But if you notice, if you look at verse number six, in between the throne, and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a what? A lamb. In verse number five, what does he say? Who is conquered? A lion. Here he says, I looked. So he hears from the angel. He says, he says man, I'm so, there's no one worthy to open the scroll. He's crying loudly. The angel says, look, look over there. The lion is conquered. And John turns and looks, and he sees a lamb the lion has overcome and i saw a lamb what comes to your mind when you think about victory in any in any arena celebration what else do you think about when you think about victory power the word victory yeah is <laughs> what You spell it out in your brain, yeah. That's a good place to start. I like it. Usually, we think victory, we think winner, which means we it necessitates that we also think loser. Anybody else get on their ESPN app multiple times a day like I do? I want to see who was victorious. I want to see who won. Anybody watch the primary? Is that what it's called? Last night in South Carolina, you want to see who won. Victory is, (laughs) or maybe, like I don't know what, but that's what victory is. I won. I'm powerful. I've got more than you. I'm better than you. That's what victory is. And here, God has redefined the word victory. He redefines hope. Bruce Metzger, he said, instead of a ferocious lion that hurts others, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb that takes into himself the hurts of others. This, friend, is the secret of history. The lamb has taken the hurt that me and you deserve into himself. The scroll contains the revelation that Almighty God brings the kingdom of heaven through sacrificial love. How does the kingdom of heaven get from there to here? Through sacrificial love. Christ's death is the key event in God's conquest of evil and the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. When we see here this lamb who's standing, notice, and between the throne, We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, we, the lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all of the earth. This is not a cute little six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus. This is not some precious to be held and to be coddled. He, he's, not, he's not white. Okay, he, he doesn't have like an influencer light you know, on him. So he's just perfectly illuminated from every angle. That's not what he's talking about here. This is the bloodied, conquering king, Jesus, who is here on his throne. There's nothing cute about this. Everything around this throne and Jesus Christ is seeing as it is and as it should be. It's, seeing, it's being seen rightly. Here, Jesus Christ is victorious, and it is beautiful, and it is glorious. If you look here, We we see here in verse number uh, six. It says, uh, the living creatures among the elders I saw this lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes. So we have the horns here, the eyes here. The eyes represent this picture of wisdom. That's what they represent. The horns represent power. Again, both of these images from the Old Testament. Image and power. And here John is saying the lamb is the perfection. How many horns does he have? Look there with me. How many horns? Seven. How many eyes does he have? Seven. How many with the spirit of God? The seven spirits of God? He's saying he is the perfect essence of who God is. He is the perfection of wisdom and power. And where is he standing? Maybe we missed this. And between the throne, the four living creatures. I actually don't like that word. If you, uh, you can go look it up in the Greek. The, the, the best translation of that word, a more literal way to translate that word between, it literally means in the midst of. It literally means in the midst of, and most translations actually have that. The ESV here doesn't. But if you notice in between the throne and the four living creatures, he's saying in the midst of everything that's happening, here we see the lamb. Wait, but how is he in the midst of the throne if that's where God the Almighty is seated? We have God the Father who's sitting on his throne. So how is the lamb in the midst of it? Here's how. Jesus Christ comes from and stands in the very center of the being of Almighty God. He comes from and he stands in the very center of the being of Almighty God. Jesus Christ, the slaughtered and resurrected lamb, stands at the very center of all of redeemed humanity. Jesus Christ, the slaughtered lamb, is the new symbol of victory. Christ's sacrificial death belongs to the way that God rules the world. How does God rule the world? By sacrificing his son. By giving of himself. By identifying with those who need him the most. By laying aside his glory and taking on humanity, this hypostatic union, perfectly God, perfectly man, and he stands at the center of humanity. What are we going to do if this is ultimate reality? How would we respond this morning if this is actually true? If we actually believe what John is saying here, what Christ is saying right here, how do we actually respond to this ultimate reality? Because now, if you kill me, all right, you kill me. To die is gain. You want to throw me in jail? That's fine. The lamb is still on his throne. Guess what you did to him? He's sitting there slaughtered by humanity. Send me to jail. I'm just going to start a, start a you know, in-prison jail ministry and evangelize everybody there. What happens if I'm evangelizing, if I'm telling somebody about Jesus, they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? That's okay. People ask me questions all the time. My nine-year-old asks me questions all the time. I don't have the answer to it. Now, I'm a little slow, but that's, that's okay. I'm like, it, the lamb is on his throne, what happens if I if I go broke? It's okay, the lamb is on his throne. What happens if my children are taken away from me? What happens if they begin to tax churches? What happens if they vote this person or this person? It's okay, the lamb is on his throne. This is ultimate reality. The question of do you believe that he reigns now determines everything else about your life. Your answer to that question, does he reign right now? Every other minuscule factor in your life hinges on your answer to that question. Does he reign right now? Because friend, this is not a future reality. It is a present one. It is a present reality. When Jesus Christ was taken back up into heaven, He ascended into heaven. Before that, he rose from the dead, conquering death, our enemy, our sin, and our shame. And the reason that he could do that, after he was put on a cross, after he lived a perfect life, after he came down as this little baby that we celebrated Christmas, he did all of that so that he could say, I want to live for you, I want to live with you, I want to identify with you. And I want to take all of your sin on myself. He became sin for us. And he says, I want to create you as my righteousness. He lived perfectly. Something that we can't do. He never sinned. He never had a bad thought. Anybody not had a bad thought since I started preaching? More power to you, man. He lived perfectly. He got on the cross and he took the wrath of God the Father on himself what we deserved. He didn't take our sin on himself. He became sin for us and took the father's wrath on himself. He died the death that we deserve to die. We hate death so much because we know we deserve it. He died for us. Physically, he was spiritually separated from the father. He was there in the ground for three days and he rose victorious, thereby offering us hope. As he ascended into heaven 40 days later, this is what happened. He takes the scroll and he says, I can open this now. John sees that almost as it happens. Verse number seven. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. He ascended, he takes the scroll from his dad and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp all right there we go we got some harps all right and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints all right so we got the harps now we don't know what this means that's cool verse nine and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for, for God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Wait, where do we reign later? Right in heaven. That's not in the Bible. This is in the Bible. We reign now. The lamb's followers reign with him even now. And how do we reign with this slaughtered king? We reign with him in the same way that he does. With sacrificial love. By laying down our preferences and our personalities and the things that we like and what we think is victory, we lay those down because we're reigning with him and we are citizens of his kingdom. Chapters two and three, we've already seen this. At the end of every single one of the seven churches, he said, and to the one who conquers. How do we conquer? Oh man, we, we stop in victory. No, no. We have to read the Sermon on the Mount. We go back to Matthew chapter five. We bless those who curse us. Y- yeah, but you don't understand. Well, then you don't understand Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. This is raining? Jesus says, "Yeah, we pray for those who mistreat us." Ah, yeah, man, but I just don't know if I can. Then you don't understand the reign of Jesus. We do good to those who hate us. This is reigning in Christ's kingdom. It is. You love your enemies. Boy, that's reigning. According to Jesus, it is. Yes, this is reigning. That's why he calls us to take up our cross and die. How often? daily, and with his arms outstretched, that here is what the Lamb calls victory. He says, this is victory. This is the only way that he makes the kingdom of heaven come to earth. Friend, if you take nothing away else from this sermon, take this away, that things are not as they seem. Things are not as they seem. Jesus Christ is taking the American dream, the American ideal, what social media says, the way that most of us were raised, and he's flipping it the way that we read the Bible. He's flipping it on his head. He said, here's what victory looks like. Victory is sacrificial love. Victory is responding in goodness and in kindness. Not giving to others what they deserve, but giving to others what you've been given. Verse number 11 Notice here, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory. Again, he's saying, here's another song of worship. Well, I don't sing because mm, mm." you're going to hate heaven, bro or else you're not gonna make it your call oh yeah well my I, i don't care they probably probably not in heaven i don't care what they said here he's saying when we see and understand who i can't help this is my this is the expression of the physical along with the heart and they just keep exploding into celebration exploding into worship Worthy is the one in honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And in the sea, all of them and all that is in them, everything that's in them. In Christ alone, my hope is. Laugh it up, bro. I'm going to put a camera right up here and we're going to start streaming that. (laughs) What I'm not saying is if you start singing with more gusto, then Jesus is going to like you more. What I am saying is you have a heart problem. What I am saying is that I have a heart problem because my eyes are not fixed on the throne. I don't understand the sacrificial love that Christ has for me. I can't give all of my attention to him because I don't think he's worthy of it. We're singing that song in a few minutes. And everything that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. They said, let it be. And if you notice the progression here, this song comes from those who are close to the throne, to those on the outskirts of the throne, those a little bit further to the ends of the earth. The character and nature of God is to redeem to the ends of the earth. He says, I want you to come to me. And then go to the ends of the earth. They fell down and they worshiped. And we are invited into this realm of the Lamb's rule and reign today. The last thing I think that we see here in this, as we maybe summarize all of chapter 5, is uh, what I heard of this week uh, by another pastor. He called it convergent space. And convergent space is where heaven and earth kiss. Well, I don't like that link. Then read the Psalms, bro. I don't care. Your wife probably doesn't like you. So. This convergence space, is this overlap. It's this reality that we see here in an ultimate reality where the king is ruling and reigning. And we have this convergence space. The reason that we don't believe that this is true, that the lamb is on his throne ruling and reigning today, we don't believe this. And that's why in the culture and in society, as Christians, we're getting our teeth, our teeth kicked in. We don't believe that the lamb is on his throne today and that heaven is coming down to earth like Jesus tells his disciples to pray. Pray that heaven would come down to earth, that you would see it. That's the will of the Father, and we don't believe it. So in culture, our teeth are getting kicked in. Our addictions are way higher than ever in our lives. Don't raise your hand on that one. Your addictions are higher than they have ever been and our affections for Jesus are at an all-time low. Just look around any sort of, you can look at the past week of my conversation, Keith's, anybody's conversation, man, what are you struggling with? Here's what I'm addicted to. Where's your affection for Jesus? Way down here. We can look at it here. I can look at it in my life. We can look at it in our lives. We can look at it in uh, American church we can look at it in the culture, our addictions at an all-time high, our affections for Jesus at an all-time low. And the reason that we're missing this is because we're trying to set up our own little baby thrones in our own little pathetic kingdoms. It's like a little tight throne. You know, like a little slide? I don't mean like the, you know, the five-foot slide. I'm talking about the little, the little tiny ones that you get for your two-year-old. And he climbs up, you know, and slides down. Whee, good job. Here's what what he's saying. Instead of recognizing the land that's there on the throne, that's ruling and reigning, that's at the center of all humanity, all of history, all of meaning, and all of purpose for anything that ever has been, that will be, or anything that ever is, he's saying, you're sitting on this little slide, and you're saying, I'm the king of my own kingdom, and this is Great. You're living for your pathetic little kingdom. And so we miss who God is. Here's what God's word says about sex. Here's what it says about money. Here's what it says about time. Here's what it says about going to work. Here's what it says about relationships, about parenting. Yeah, that's really interesting, God. But you don't understand how hot she is. You don't understand how he makes me feel. You only had one son named Jesus. He never sinned. You don't understand these things I live with. You don't get it. Thanks, God. That's, that's a really cool idea. You do you, bro. I'm gonna do me. And we become really terrible gods. God's. We're sitting on these dumb little thrones and our pathetic little kingdoms, and we're terrible gods. And if we were to look inwardly and look at anyone who our kingdom touches, our lives are marked with anxiety, by being tired, by being fearful, by being angry, and we're doing everything that we can to cope. Even you type Aers in the room. Type Aers, who we got? I can't talk about other personality things or else I get in trouble, so I'll just use that one, all right? It's been around for longer, so if something has some history on it, then all of a sudden it's good. It's kind of like, you know, old hymns, uh, barroom tunes. Okay, I'll get in trouble for that. So you type A's in the room. Back when you were in middle school, remember you had a list of things. Here's how I want my life to go. And at this point in our lives, boop, me too, all of those things have been checked off. Got a, I got a great wife. Got some kids. Great kids, I'll, Okay. <laughs> They're not in here, so I got some kids. I got a dog. I've got a a, a good house. I've got a smoker downstairs. I smoke meats. People ask, like, what are you smoking? Meat. meat. That's all I smoke is meat. Sometimes vegetables. No herbs. Just, you know, meats and vegetables, all right? Got a smoker. I I got a a car that runs. Got a job. I, I don't need a cab, Bill. No more questions or statements, all right, from this section. Anybody else? Raise your hand. So for you, you you got this list, all those things. You got your job promotion. You got this. Can I ask you this question? How's that working out for you? But you got everything you wanted. You plop down on your tiny little baby throne in your pathetic little kingdom, and you've got everything you wanted, and you're still longing for something more. You're still going to a counselor because of your anxiety. You still can't give generously or faithfully because you got to hang on to what you got. You're still, you're still ticked at your kids because they're not acting just perfect, and they're making you a fool of a parent. I thought you had everything you wanted. Now, they're still longing for more because you're the king of your kingdom. Edmund Clowney, he said, without worship, we live manipulated and manipulating lives. We move in either frightened panic or diluted lethargy, as we are in turn alarmed by specters and soothed by placebos. I love when somebody says, ah, "I'm just, I'm just a, i am just i am just just overthink things. I'm just a deep thinker." No, you're not. Read some Edmund Clowney. Th- this guy can think. He says all of these, and we can look back at the past few years. You remember uh, what was it called? Oh yeah, COVID nineteen. Um, what, what, what is this, an election year? Oh, yeah. We're alarmed by these specters, these things that bring in. Oh, no, I can't believe it. Oh, no, this happened with my kid or with my job or with my house or whatever it is. And those things are a fixed reality. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be alarmed by some of those things. I mean, a brother told me yesterday, man, I've got water coming in between my house, you know, my wall and this. I'm like, yeah, that stinks. Got to get that fixed. But we move back and forth between being alarmed by these specters, this frightened panic, and then we swing the pendulum. We, I can't handle that. I want to be soothed by this placebo. I just, I just need to get away from that. I can't handle the frightened panic because it means that my kingdom is not, not working out as well as it should. Can I tell you this? A glass of wine or something else to drink in the evening for many in here can be a good gift. Sitting down and drinking an entire bottle of wine to escape the anxieties of the day is rebellion against a holy God. Pornography is nothing more than a placebo. Pornography is not your problem. It's your solution. Your problem is you think that you're the king of this little universe and it's all that matters. And when things don't go as well as you think they should, you've got to find something to escape to. The emotional affair, I hate that phrase, but you know what I mean? The emotional affair with that person that you're having at work, is a placebo. Because you're not getting what you think you should be getting from your spouse. The physical affair that you're having with that individual, it's a placebo to escape. Watching the shows that you watch that contain the graphic information or images that they have is a placebo, and we've turned our minds off to these things in a way to escape. Hey, God, thanks so much for your word, but I'm going to do this instead. Showing up on Sundays and reading your Bible every day and praying so that your life goes better or so that, you're, so that God is happier with you that's a placebo. This past week, you've lived for one of two kingdoms. You've lived for one of two kings. Either the king that we see here on his throne or the prince of darkness. There is no middle ground. This is not like capture the flag where there's no man's land in the middle. We don't live there. There there is no option for that. You're either living for Christ or for the enemy. Uh, I'll illustrate quickly with this. Imagine um, this next week, uh, let's say Tuesday's normally my, my long day, uh, meetings and stuff. Let's say Tuesday uh, evening, I come home and uh, there in my house, there's a guy named, uh, name, we'll call him Philip. We got any Philips in the room? Okay, bet. So there's a guy, Philip, in my house. And I'm like, hey, Philip, I don't know you. What are you doing? He's like, hey, man, um, I, I see the way that you treat Shannon and I, I know what you, you're doing and I think I can do it better. I think I can, you know, smoke brisket better, and I think I can be a better husband to Shannon and a better parent to your kids. I think I can, you know, do better yard work. I'll tell you this right now. Somebody's somebody's getting carried out in a body bag, either me or Philip. In no universe am I going to say, oh, you know what, Philip, you're right. Even if he is right, I'm taking him out. Nobody else is going to know that he's right. Ladies, if you walked into your house this next week and there was somebody sitting there at your vanity putting on your makeup fixing that meal that you had planned for that night, talking to your husband, you say, hey, Samantha, we got any Samanthas in the room? Man, okay, we're good. So you're like, hey, who are you? I'm Samantha. What are you doing here? Here's the way that you're living your life, and I think I can just do a better job for your, for your spouse, for your kids, for your neighbors. You know what, Samantha, you're right. I'm gone. No, man. Gonna, that's not how life works. But that's what we do with God. We say, God, thank you so much for telling us how to live, for being the center of reality, but I'm going to do it instead. I'm just going to move you out of this place. And friend, this is sin when we are doing it ourselves, under our own, seemingly, under our own authority, in our own rule, and that only ever ends in brokenness, in pain, and in suffering. Do you want to know how to be a better spouse this week? Look! The lamb is on his throne. Do you want to know how to better spend your money? Look. The lamb is on his throne. Do you want to tell your neighbors about Jesus? Well, I'm a little nervous. Look. The lamb is on his throne. Do you want to know how to better spend your time? Look. The lamb is on his throne. Do you want to parent better? Look. The lamb is on his throne. Do you want to be closer to Jesus this week? Look. The lamb is on his throne. Do you want to kill sin? I would, I, would, I would bet you some good money. Before you go and you look that up, before you look on that, before you click play and turn your phone sideways, look, the lamb is on his throne. Only by gazing at ultimate reality will you begin to rightly live out of your true identity. The lamb who is slain On his throne, that's ultimate reality. In in that scroll, your name is written because you're part of human history. And I would pray that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You are not ultimately an accountant, uh, a manager, a fast food hamburger flipper, a stay at home mom, a plumber. That is not your primary identity. Your primary identity is in being a child of God. That is ultimate reality for each one of us. And we are bringing heaven to earth, this convergent space. We are bringing heaven to earth in our homes, in our workplaces, in our cars, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in the grocery store. That is our ultimate reality. We look at the lamb who is on the throne and we point to the lamb who is on the throne. Father, I pray that these words this morning, from me, from John, would remind us that the lamb on the throne is ultimate reality. Give us eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see. I pray that you would transform and conform our hearts. Remind us that you welcome us in your mercy and in your faithfulness to your presence. Father, we thank you that the Lamb is on the throne and that throne is ultimate reality. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.